The name's Trador. I'm looking for a backpack. <laughs> I'm glad this is recording. We could just start with this. Tell her the name of the show. <laughs> well, just, just, just fade it in to us going yeah. backpack. I need medical <laughs> no, attention. No, no. Tra- <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Steve, talk about the name of the show now because this is perfect. Everybody, and if you didn't catch it, welcome to First Day Spray's Memory Card Lane. I'm your host, Steve, and uh, with me is the ever illustrious Serial Box 64, Jordan Sugru. Say hello. Hello. And the mysterious mastermind, scheming from the far future to take control of the past, it's Sherwin Matthews. Yes, indeed. Uh, today, we are discussing the seminal PS1 not classic, Excalibur 2555 AD. It's a niche PS1 3D action game where you go through a dungeon as a player character called Beth. And the general gist is that everyone on the planet is living in caves and they have fetch quests for you to do. Find my backpack, partial to a drop of grog. I have plenty of grog, but no glasses to pour it into. Unless, of course, you found Cecil, my pet rat. I need logs for the fire. My mallet spins too long until you inevitably get a sword and bugger off and save the world. At least that's the Cliff Notes version. Think um, Zelda, as in not Ocarina of Time Zelda, uh, classic (laughs) Zelda, but in 3D and you're locked in the dungeons with people. That's a very, very charitable description of that game. I I think it doesn't help that I read a preview article provided by Jordan earlier that was in Edge. Yeah, that is absolutely, that is absolutely like an ad blurb, uh, simplified way. I mean, we can come out and say that this is a this is a terrible game, but what I'm curious about is, Steve, how, how did you get a hold of this? Because this is 1997. This game came out. It came out with the likes of Castlevania: Symphony of the Night, GoldenEye 007, Abe's Odyssey, Grand Theft Auto. All those great games in that year, and this came out as you were growing up. This landed in your lap. So, what was your experience like first playing this? So, we need to go back. To Christmas 1997, specifically Christmas Eve. My mother, obviously being the person she is, she knows that I like them video games and is buying me Christmas presents. And a rule we don't normally do, but occasionally do, was that we could open one present, you know, and have that the day before on Christmas Eve and play with it. And, and me be, thinking of being clever and sly, I'm gonna have the video game. And it all devolved into regret and disappointment there. Because I, I, I swear, this is a game I must have played back in the day for all of 20, 30 minutes on Christmas Eve, and then just sat down, waited for something else. You know, and then, yeah, it was a, it was kind of rubbish Christmas. Thanks, Mum. I love you, really. Uh, and then in recent years, I saw a friend selling the game. Uh, you know, and they, they have, like, many, many retro compilations and all these other things they were just selling to clear some stuff out. Saw it and thought, why did I hate this game? And it kind of bloomed back into my consciousness then. So that's why it's resurged for me personally. Curiosity as to why I hated the thing, and then rekindling as to why I hated the thing. And now I just hate the thing. Meat and potatoes. I, I am curious as to where you guys come from when it comes to this game. So I, a thousand years ago when I was young, uh, I actually never owned my PlayStation at first. I didn't get one until very late on. But I would uh, happily borrow them from a selection of different friends who had them and went on holiday or whatever. And I was like, I'll babysit your PlayStation, which is a weird thing to say, which basically translates to, Sean will take your PlayStation and sit there playing that and while you're on holiday. 
And one of the times, my friend Andrew had this copy of this game that I'd never heard of before. Kind of looked at the front, went, huh, that looks kind of like a Final Fantasy game. And thought, hmm, okay, let's try this thing. Uh, about 10 minutes later, I regretted massively trying this thing. Um, it was not good in any way, shape or form. But um, there's something residual that lodged into my head, I think, because I always wondered. I instantly forgot the name of it and just you know, had a sort of same reoccurring nightmare that happened every kind of you know couple of years. It just had this sort of thing, flashback, going, bottle of grog, a drop of grog, sort of floating through the air towards me. And yeah, it wasn't until I saw your playthrough and it suddenly dawned upon me that you'd help me find this elusive beast that I couldn't give name to. Uh, the flip side to this, of course, is that I discovered the true nightmare was only just to begin. I think at that point, it's it's a beautiful segue into you, Jordan. You can talk about your experience of this thing. Uh, th this podcast of Memory Card Lane has largely been put together be because of Stephen Sherwin's shared love slash trauma for this title. So I don't have that experience. I didn't grow up with it. I didn't see it on a shelf, and I didn't pick it up for an under the Christmas tree. But when you have a look at, you know, the game, I can kind of understand from the cover why it might give you that kind of impression that maybe this is something like Final Fantasy. If you haven't seen the cover, it focuses on a sword being held towards a red sky with lightning in the distance by an arm either rising from the sea or the earth. I couldn't quite tell, but still, it, it, it works well enough. It being his caliber, it's probably the lake. Just, just, or is that... Wait, no, the lady... The, the sword in the stone? Yeah, the sword, sword in the lake is his caliber. Just, 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 just a brief British myth, uh, like, tales and things. But, uh, but in this instance... The sword is in the air, and the person is in the ground. It's very strange. It, it's almost like the game is telling you that this is a game of opposites. It's kind of like, well, the sword's in the air, the person's in the ground. You know, the game is advertised as fun, and yet it is not. <laughs> so, yeah, my experience was brief. I, pl I played it, obviously, for the purpose of this podcast. I played, what was that, about four levels in? And I suddenly realized that um, this was the game. It is... It's a very monotonous game. There is not a great deal to it. Uh, but I died in a particular place and meant that I had to do the level again. And I just thought, I just can't do it. I think I've seen everything that I need to of this game. So that's my, that is my experience with it. Do we know anything about this company? I know of some of their previous work. Um, in this case, Tempest Interactive also made the, also not a classic for PS1, Lone Soldier. That was a game they made in 1996 and also had Surprisingly, altered levels of uh, elevation and gunplay, as opposed to you know the static boxy rooms that you will see in this game. I think that was the only other game they made. Both were published by Telstar uh, in the UK. I'm not sure. There's a different company that published them in the States. But yeah, the, um, other than that, I think that's the only two games I know of to their name. So I guess that brings us on to actually what the gameplay is like. Can we describe this thing? I mean, it is... Very 1997, but it's also very antiquated. Yeah, it's... For, for the listener who for some reason is listening to this but has not played the game, it's a 3D action-adventure game in the most bare-bones sense. You move around an environment with a character not too dissimilar and was compared to Lara Croft, going through room to room, finding puzzle items and, you know, pugilizing monsters in a accessible battle mode where you, a, a, akin to Resident Evil's stance button where you aim a gun, you would instead equip your sword ready to, you know, lay the smack down with your giant oversized blade. 
And yeah, that you do that, you move maneuver around a few basic traps, talk to people who normally want a fetch quest of some description to find puzzle items and then proceed. Normally at the start of the level, you'll be thrust and you'll see a massive door in your way you cannot progress. And the goal of the level would be to get through said door by doing everyone else's little jobs and beating up monsters along the way. It's bare bones. There's a crafting system where you can smash two items together and you can occasionally do spells although for some god-awful reason you learn a spell on each stage and your character will forget them for the following one and have to learn them again which is a a strange mechanic i'm assuming it's because if, if people want a password into the latest level they don't get progression but you don't carry items across anyway i think uh, i think it's generally because of game balance like i think they just made them as discrete you know little zones they sort of create the characters in and if you try to put in a spell from somewhere else it might break the game Let's go with that, because there's no actual depth to the combat or to anything that actually happens whatsoever in it. It is rinse and repeat, exactly as you said. But that's the only conceivable reason I can say why you might forget your spells. There's no real thematic or sensible logical reason why that would happen. You mentioned the combat show, and I just want to say that the enemies in this game, be they uh, goblins or soldiers with tech rifles or abominations, cybernetic scorpions, or just bandits, they're all very polite and always take it in turn to queue up to try and beat the living daylights out of you. That must be a coding thing, right? That must be like only one person can be the bad guy at a time. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there's lots of stuff we can talk about with this game in terms of where it falls down, but yeah, the things that it does well, this is a very short list. It really captures the unrelenting horror of being a creature in this game with the screams that come out of the skeletons and the death knell of the scorpions. That's the list of the end. That's the end of the stuff it does well. Oh, no, I kind of like the music. You know, we can get onto that. It's it's interesting. I, do you know, I, I think the, the issue with Excalibur, truthfully, is that it's a game where it really has suffered from that fact of how much hype was built around this thing, seemingly. I mean, there's always, there's always the element with any retro game where people kind of look back on it and go, oh my God, this thing is incredible. I love this. And they talk about it being seminal release and everything else. And you kind of drill into it and go, really? Was it really like a massive release or really bad at the time? And if you look at it from the 19 sort of the period it was released in, it's actually not god-awful. I mean, now it's absolute trash, but you look at it then, it's not god-awful. It's just not a terribly good or bad game. But the marketing was really hyping it up to, this is the new Tomb Raider. And that's kind of where it falls down because people sat there and went, okay, cool. This is Loom in the new Tomb Raider. Then played this thing that's nothing like Tomb Raider. And by the way, is very clunky and doesn't do what it's supposed to do very well. I think that's the issue with it. Um, that and... I think the biggest issue I sort of find with it is a lot of the elements of it don't really feel like they've been designed to work hand in hand. And that's where I kind of circle back to what you were saying on the music. There's lots of atmospheric looking dungeons. One thing this game actually does quite nicely is creates some interesting um, textures and some interesting rooms and so on. You go in with sort of mood lighting and that sort of stuff. But it mashes together such a broad spectrum of this is half futuristic, half medieval dungeon. It's a walking skeleton or an orc running around and now it's a bandit like Yo from the future with a ray gun. And the music goes from atmospheric stuff to Wipeout or Gran Turismo, uh, not Gran, well, I guess Gran Turismo, at the drop of a hat. It's kind of just got that sort of 90s fairground kind of thing going on. It's a bit funky.
and the same is true of I think most elements of it. It just feels like at any given point, none of the departments involved working on this thing ever spoke to each other and just threw all this thing into a bucket, mixed it around a bit, and out fell Excalibur, and that's what it is. I think that's a good way to describe it because it's like even the setting itself. You're basically a dungeon crawling adventurer with a giant sword, and you're going through sci-fi dungeons and caves flying orcs and soldiers and all these other things. And quite rightly, the, the, the soundtrack is a strange medley of you've got your Vangelis from Blade Runner kind of stuff mashed up with cold storage from Wipeout, as Sherwin quite rightly said. You know, I, you shouldn't ever lean too heavily into narrative, but I, I have to draw, this is the strangest thing. This is, it, obviously this is set in a post-apocalyptic future where the big bads have a time machine and go back to steal Excalibur because it's uh, magical. They have a time machine that they can go back in time to avert disaster or take over history and they choose to steal a sword. And then live in essentially the same kind of feudal squalor, but with technological trimmings. It feels like this could have just been an RPG adventure game set in like the Middle Ages or whatever, and then they just threw sci-fi stuff and just like blended it up. So like people along the line did not really have much of a great plan for this. It feels very much like a medley of stuff put together. I think the strangest thing about Excalibur 2555 is that it has both no story yet an incredible amount of dialogue. There are so many different characters that you can talk to and they'll give you little sort of morsels of information about the kind of world around you. You don't get much of a glimpse. Obviously the story is pretty paper thin to establish it. You play Beth from the past who needs to retrieve Excalibur in the future and you are surrounded by a partially techno world and trying to fight your way through. And, and that is pretty much the only goal that you have in the game. I think that's the biggest issue with the gameplay is that when you look at games, especially from that period of time, these kind of games were going in three directions. You're either having a role-playing game where the goal is to become more powerful and get better loot and uh, eventually build up your character to a point that you can finally take on the final boss. Another direction you can go is something that's story-based, like The Legend of Zelda, where you're doing all of these tasks because you're eventually building towards, yet again, another another big climax that's been partly kind of built up by the story and the characters and you caring about that world. The third way you can go is to go with pure arcade action, have a score attack, have any kind of high score. This game has none of those. It doesn't choose any particular path of those, and what you end up with is something that feels like a prototype that you might make just to show that you can make a game. Not necessarily design a game, but, but make a game. The extremity of design here is busy work, and there's just really not much more to it than that. So I think even for 1997 standards, it's just not up to scratch. You have to find my husband for me. You see, we both had the keys to the security shutter, but the robbers kidnapped my husband and took one of the keys. They say if I don't give them the other key, they will kill him. Oh, please, you have to find him. It, it, it's, it's funny you mention that because on my recent rapid retread and whatnot, they, they do have mechanics. There are quote-unquote puzzles in this game. There are hidden walls. There are obviously traps, as we've mentioned. There are even, for some god-awful reason, unsigned posts, unindicated, unkillable enemies that you can still strike. They still make hit sounds. They still bleed. They just never go down. So they're just there to basically say, you've gone the wrong way, pal. Bugger off. But in the last level in particular, there are some interesting little tricks and traps. You know, you've got to like pick up an a, a item to then interact with like a fire pit to, to traverse the fire pit. You know, it's not all just talk to person, I need a cheese sandwich, go to the person who's got a cheese sandwich, 
get it from them and then give it to the person who wants a cheese sandwich and get a key to then move on. There are some semblance of mechanics. Clearly, obviously, the later you get into a game's development, you come up with new ideas and they finally start to branch out. Also, it should be worth noting, they, they don't really like the idea of a player progressing, it feels. They, they, the, 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 um, the combat is very one-sided in that you can do many attacks, but if you don't just use the cheesiest block, single swipe, no charge-up, you have a charge-up move that will just get you hurt. You know, these moves that you can utilize that will just be a detriment because the enemies are so quick to react or are the coded just to, you know, hit you as soon as they get close and they have a very simple pattern. But they queue up and they don't provide you with any means of healing yourself the further this game gets in. You'll find, like, the odd mastering of healing items on levels, but the last few, it becomes a case of attrition and trying to figure out the correct way, which unfortunately is the most boring way of combating enemies to get to the final boss. And in that, I think, is the only boss in the game talking about the boss specifically it boils down to uh, the ocarina of time ganon fight if it was bad and you just hit the ball back and there's no like back and forth tennis match with link and ganon in epic affair it's just smacking a small gif of a ball back at the bad guy and he keeps saying how he's going to kill you and then i'm going to get you next time gadget and dies it's kind of mediocre it's it's insulting that the, the game ends with uh nothing blatant sequel baiting as well that's the last thing you want after, what, like, 11 levels of the same stage. Yeah, unfortunately, and I think this is the... You guys are both sort of hitting, hitting the nail on the head. It, it does feel like a prototype. It's Someone kind of said, can we achieve this? Yes, here's a basic you know, frame of a game. But at no one point did anyone involved in the making of this game have a sense of, what are we trying to achieve? What's the larger picture? What's the end user experience playing this thing? Like, they start it up, they start playing, they get a fetch quest. Okay, fantastic. We give them another fetch quest, okay, and then we give them another one. Right, do we want to vary these missions up, you know, these quests up a little bit? Do we want to, you know, create some different objectives, different puzzles? No, let's keep on going with the fetch quest, because that's what we've got coded into this thing. Right, so we do that. Yeah, what, what do we want the player to be feeling? Do we want them to be scared, nervous, anything else? No, we want their dance music to keep the pulse going. Okay, fair enough. What consistent image does our world have? There's, there's so many levels where this is a game where you look at it and go, this just doesn't, none of this marries up together. None of this works to give you a sort of consistent um, experience. And I think that's that's the biggest place where it falls down. And by 97 standards, it, it's not awful for that because games weren't necessarily the most sophisticated back then. But at the same time, it certainly was, there's no way of saying a redeemable kind of point of, it's not like they released this in the 90s and everyone went, okay, well, that's actually kind of cool because, yeah, that's cool and what they expected. It was a bad game when it came out. And it wasn't helped, as, as previously mentioned, by the hype that, you know, whoever sort of, you know, whatever marketing put behind it by sort of bouncing around the word like Tomb Raider. It's really interesting, like in one of the, uh, one of the magazine articles I'm sure we'll talk about, the uh, one of the people involved in the game actually was talking about, well, it's only like Tomb Raider in the comparison that we have Beth and they have Lara. You know, that's where it really ends, and it's 3D. That's where it ends. And I almost wonder, in retrospect, thinking about it now, whether that's something where that's a person thinking, yeah, this doesn't compare at all favorably to Tomb Raider. Let's walk away from that one and sort of manage expectations we really can. Because this is not a game where you look at it and think that. This is not a game where you kind of go back to it or whatever really build a, a series or a franchise or anything the same way as Tomb Raider does. This is definitely something where someone makes it and at very best they're going to make it and then hopefully the company's going to move on to make something else and then kind of forget about this. Yeah, I mean, Beth isn't even really a character in, in that they don't have any dialogue, they don't interact with the world. I mean, in, in, in Tomb Raider, the original Tomb Raider, Lara is popping off words, and, you know, okay, most of the time it's saying no because you're trying to put the wrong key in the wrong socket.
No. But in, in between that, there is a thread of cutscenes and story development. Uh, in this case, it's just a, a, a lady avatar that, for one of the releases, they decided to try and sexy up their outfit for some reason. Doesn't really do anything, it just looks weird. Uh, you know, one version of the game, she's in a traditional green garb. One, she's in a pink svelte thing with black underpants. It's, yeah, it, it is what it is. And mechanically, they are like leaps and bounds apart. This feels more like someone's first go with the Net Yaros, I believe that's how you pronounce it, the Net Yariosi development kit they had, the black PlayStation. The comparisons to Tomb Raider are a stretch. I mean, even, even comparisons to Zelda are a stretch in that it's just a fantasy setting. And it doesn't become more obvious than when you actually pick up a controller and start playing the game. Because obviously Tomb Raider was especially known for playing and controlling extremely well. Um, having that kind of agility and, and range of, of movement so that you could jump and leap and roll and do everything that you need to in the jungle terrain. And it, and it made sense. In Excalibur, it is tank controls, and you're you're working with a not necessarily over-the-shoulder camera, but a third-person camera in the mid-late 90s sense, which is your character is like centered to the screen. Everything is managed in that manner where you're just shuffling along, and it's it's not fast, and it's not got any kind of action to it. It's 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 a strange thing because they they did describe it in some of the previews as being an action adventure. Besides the fact that it doesn't have any action or adventure. To be honest, the game plays more like a point-and-click adventure. You know, you're collecting items and sort of solving, you know, environmental puzzles and stuff like that. But they're far better as far as point-and-click adventures go, and they don't require tank control. So it came out in a bad year for a game that's as undercooked as this is. But it's kind of fascinating to look at. I mean, the character goes through three different designs during the development phase, and two get shipped to different regions. It has the goal to suggest there's a sequel going to be in the works for this game as a sort of a tease right at the end. I I really don't know what happened with this development. Did they just... Do, do you think they just maybe had six, 12 months locked off their development schedule and just said, release it now? It feels like this is very much a, a, a learning studio. Like, they, 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 they have the, the connections to publish these games, but they are still, like, putting it all together. Like... Their previous effort, Lone Soldier, is just a corridor shooter in 3D with, like, you know, some, I suppose for the time, acceptable CGI FMV footage, and then you're just a dude walking forward shooting things with an Uzi. It feels very much, again, like a indie de an indie-developed Net Yerozi game of the era. But, you know, I think if you if you look at games going back, to, you know, video games going back to the 80s, and certainly, the, certainly, you know, the sort of all throughout the 80s, there was just this kind of thing where small studios would just come into being and the bar was a lot lower, like in terms of they weren't making them for the same. Yeah, people didn't look at these things with a sense of sophistication like they, they might do now. People didn't necessarily get hyped about these things. They were, the industry was a very different place. Uh, you could get by making just really bog standard games that were just didn't cost as much as the AAA titles, if that was even a term back then. Just making these small games that people would buy for a little bit, play a whole bunch of times, because that's what it was. There was no Steam. There was no massive libraries for anything. Everyone just bought you know, a random game here and there. And lots of small studios kind of came up with all these different things. And this feels like that, but the difference is, is the industry is the end of the 90s. Like we are now starting to see the emergence of these companies which have transitioned from arcades to consoles. Capcom, a really good example. And and they're just, you know, oh, you've got these studios 
uh, Square, because I don't think they were quite Square Enix yet, but Square are kind of you know, on the map and they're doing exciting things. Nintendo have turned into this powerhouse that is just built on strength and strength and strength. We kind of have, the industry is transforming and there isn't a place for these types of, as you've said, like kind of studios that are learning what their trade is or just you know, chucking out kind of a, a sort of copycat clone kind of S game or a game that's a bit under the radar, making a little bit of cash here and there sort of thing out of it enough to fund the next game or whatever. That, that that's not really a thing anymore at this point in the 90s it's not really going that way and that wouldn't necessarily re-emerge until we start looking at you know phone apps and so on going you know much much more into the future so i think that's kind of it do you think the environment of the playstation kind of helped to breed that because you know back in the 80s obviously you you know you had uh at the very start of the 80s you had in television ColecoVision, tari and they would Put out just about anything uh, then nintendo came along and they wanted to change that by licensing and you know actually give out a license and a seal of quality to try and kind of refine the library somewhat so that not just anything could end up on it but you look at the playstation had over four thousand games released on it it was probably sort of the biggest platform of that mid 90s and you weren't necessarily going to make a game for an audience as sort of small or kind of niche as say uh, the Sega Saturn or something that's again kind of uh, relegated to a certain limited audience like the N64 in 1997 when it was still fairly new. Here's the PlayStation, it's easy to, to develop for. Uh, I don't know what Sony's licensing was like back then, but you know, 4,000 games, I think you can figure it out. Could it have been that that platform just sort of allowed a similar kind of Atari in television style slew of games to just come through and not necessarily kind of have that sort of check and balance at the door i, I could certainly see that looking at some of the games that are released in this period excalibur is by no means the uh, exception yeah it, quality control uh, i think is an issue and in in the in the developer's defense it feels like in in articles that we've read they don't try and purport to be what they're being built up as like it's normally the uh the journalists are saying, is this the next Tomb Raider and so on? And like, no, it's more of an adventure game. And uh, yeah, this may have been caught up in a whirlwind of its own hype, despite the fact that it's made by a group of about 12 people, uh, which is uh, you know, strangely uh, uh, a weird parallel to Tomb Raider 1 as well. But it also depends on the, the skill of those people. And when it, when they're not got much oversight and the publisher is just going, yeah, that's OK, we can take that to Sony and Sony will pay us. That, that's good enough you get this kind of situation where a game that is underbaked, underdeveloped by a development team that may or may not know the ropes and are just trying things out, then gets thrust into the world. And then three three grumpy old people get to moan about it on a podcast. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, just quickly bouncing off that, I don't want to labour the point too much because we've already talked about it already, but if your job is marketing, your job is to look at the way the industry is going and go, right, we've just had Tomb Raider, everyone's nuts over this sort of thing. There's just been Resident Evil, people gone nuts over this thing say it's that these are buzzwords just get people excited because we'll shift a whole bunch of units the first week and there's you know the game developers aren't to blame for that they've just made this thing you know that they're kind of you know this is them learning it or maybe they're pretty proud of it or whatever or maybe they haven't got as much time because they're trying to rush it out the door to capitalize on that before tomb raider 2 turns up or the next resident evil or silent hill or whatever they just need to kind of latch into that and they're just and that's what it is and you're right that's exactly it like the developers made what this thing is the hype is what makes it so bad in retrospect. But the sad reality is exactly as you say, skip forward to now, and this game stands out not because it's interesting, 
neither of us came at this because we'd heard the hype and went, oh my god, this is incredible. Like, I really need to buy this thing. I love Resident Evil. I love Tomb Raider. Let's go buy this thing. We came into this thing quite by accident. You know, I, I got it because one of my friends had this game and I went, oh, I'll try this and then regretted doing it. You got it and it ruined Christmas. The reason why I did that is not because we bought into the hype and then were disappointed. It's because we actually played it. We shouldn't move away from the fact of that. It is inherently a bad game and it was a bad game at the time it's just yeah it's excalibur in excalibur's defense and i, I can't really say this i don't think there's any other game on the ps1 that even comes close to, to its style uh, and it's like gameplay it's it's combination of things it's 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 its own uniquely strange and terrible beast uh, and we haven't even talked about the voice acting you know i, I can't think of another 3d action game like it it's a very peculiar little title in that regard. I mean, it's kind of lucky that it didn't come out before Ocarina of Time because it would have been absolutely slated. I, th- I, I mean, in Edge Magazine, uh, they gave a pretty positive preview um, in their February 97 issue. Uh, they seemed to like the way that it looked and they seemed to like the way that the producer was talking about the game. Uh, it's a different story come April of that year when they come to review it. It gets a 6 out of 10, though, which is still fairly decent, I would say, for reviewer standards, and particularly Edge's standards. But considering the fact that there were still beta images of Ocarina of Time coming out at this point, where it still looked pretty rudimentary, and then the following year it was going to come out and it was going to, well, it was going to blow good games out of the water, let alone this game, uh, I, I feel like it got a little bit more leeway because it was still it was still at that point where even though there were so many other really big games that were coming out and changing a sort of a standard of what to kind of expect from 3D games in particular, here you had uh, Excalibur, which was still going through sort of the growing pains, the, the sort of the teething problems. And there's a lot of those early 3D games where they, they just feel awkward to play. For all that can be said about sort of, you know, the early tank controls of Resident Evil, those games have endured because there is ultimately a, a, you know, a brilliant design there that's something that keeps you playing. This does not have something that keeps you playing. This is pretty much uh, condensed within the first five minutes of the game. You know everything that you're going to experience from this game, and so it just doesn't have that kind of depth. There was a PC port of this game, by the way. Uh, I thought I would mention this because apparently that's all I know about it, other than it had a PC port which was with the newer, quote-unquote, sexier character model. I I bring this up merely because it's apparently been released in 1998 and that did contend against Ocarina of Time. Well, I'm sure the the, the PC Master Race were really kind of wheeling that out. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because, yes, I I 100% hear where you're coming from. What I just heard, though, is this is one of the founding fathers of PC gaming. You know, e- easy there. <laughs> it had no chance anyway. Half-Life came out the same year, let's be fair. PC had its own share of belters in 98 as much as PS1. Maybe Sherwin's right. Maybe Excalibur was the shooting star that, you know, burst across the sky and Half-Life looked up to and said, what if? I can't see Gabe Newell looking at Beth and going, hmm, we need more polygonal-shaped almond heads. And she'd be designed in... 17 more outfits <laughs> you know this this is the point like I, I see where you guys are coming from but this is literally exactly it just because it's one of the founding fathers doesn't mean it's a role model it's an example not to do these things let's look at it this way right just because it's a founding forefather of pc gaming just because without excalibur you can have no 
you know, out of PC games as we know them now. Just because it's that doesn't mean it's a good example. It means it's a bad example. Don't do this, everyone. Don't make this thing. Like, you know, this is the beast. This is, like, if you, you know, this is the devil itself. Do not approach this thing. You know, go and make angels. Don't make devils. That's that's, that's what Excalibur does. You, you gave the developers maybe about 15 seconds of sort of, like, good grace to sort of lure them in and then said, don't make it like this. Don't make it like this at all. What about the other aspects besides the gameplay? Because, I mean, there is something to admire about making, for 97, a decent-looking PS1 game. You know, the environments, they're a bit sort of slow in the beginning, but they kind of pick up in diversity later on. What do you guys think of the actual visual fidelity of it? Going using a password. Like, you know, if, you're gonna, if you, dear listener, are going to play this goddamn game, all right, do yourself a favor, play the first level so you get a hang of the mechanics and then get the password for the second to last level, level 12. Because uh, there's no dialogue, but it's night and day difference. Like the texture work is better, the level layout is better. It's clearly been, it's the Tempest Interactive's A game in terms of level design. Like uh, followed by the one of the rubbishest bosses I've ever fought in a video game. But it uh, there is like talent on show in comparison to bland caves or mechanical walls. It looks small. The uh, the inside of a demented cathedral filled with like stormtroopers, which is actually way more interesting than you know a cave with a dude with a club. So yeah, I would say visually, and it's got a lot of coloured lighting and uh, you know that, that kind of experimental volumetric stuff that was on the PS One at the time and was becoming a big buzzwords. And I don't know too much about that level of game development, but I know it was a emerging thing. And you know, it had more colour on show than any other three D game of its era is what I'd like to say, but there are no doubt countless examples proving me wrong. Uh, it's just merely decent in that regard. I think in the in the, uh, in the the Edge review that uh, we, we sort of referenced a couple of times with the devs, they talked a lot about the main focus of what they were doing is trying to make the level design, i.e. the actual graphics and so on, actually work. They, they talked a lot about how much effort they'd done to try and compact it in and kind of get the FPS to where they wanted it to and all sorts of stuff like that. And... It does show, like they've actually made. If you look at it static, not moving or anything, or you just look at the backgrounds, it's it's nice, it works, and you can tell they've put loads and loads of focus into this, and that's perhaps where the thing has gone wrong because they've put so much focus into that they forgot to make a game to go with it. But yeah, yeah, at least it, it certainly looks nice. It, it is a bewildering mismatch of styles, but it looks nice. Kind of took your your impressions of the world, of course, Steve. That it doesn't necessarily kind of match with maybe expectations of the future i mean the idea of a story that is going from Arthurian england to 2555 is like wow like you're, you're just imagining you know some kind of antiquated warrior dealing with you know flying cars and spaceships and aliens and all kinds of crazy stuff and it's really not quite that but I wondered, I, I wondered if there was any other kind of fiction that took place in that time. So, franchises set in the 26th century, Dino Crisis 3. Oh, wow. Classic. The Riddick series. Oh, uh, okay. Dead Space. No way. Firefly. Halo. And finally, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. What? Yeah, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. It's a bit of an eclectic mix. In fact, yeah. because it's got an exact year, 2555, I tried to figure out if any of these franchises actually overlap. It turns out one does, and that's Halo. Uh, 2555 takes place right in the middle of Master Chief being asleep. You know, after Halo 3? Listen. 
Wake me when you need me. <laughs> it just faded in to us going yeah. backpack. <laughs> I need medical no, attention. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> You'll tell him this is part of the deep halo lore and we never knew. Absolutely. Well, while our, you know, beloved Master Chief was in cryosleep, we needed another hero, and that hero was Beth. Well, that's the end, that's the end of the game. Halo is a sequel to Excalibur. I'm, I'm just picturing shady backroom deals where Bungie are like, guys, we need some lore to wrap around our sci-fi shooter. Uh, are those guys from Telstar still available? You know, and sweaty brows and hushed whispers just to get the chief one big adventure against was Delavar or something. I can't remember. The, the, the big bad of the game is just some bold guy with a ray gun. Is it? Yeah, Delavar. But crucially, they couldn't get the money to get Beth. That was just too high budget for them, so they had to make up Master Chef instead. Oh, dear. That is surprising, though. I mean, it's a strange fictional time to go for. It's, it seems like 2555 is not necessarily kind of the future that we would imagine for, I don't know, anything that we've seen in the last sort of 20, 30 years of futuristic movies. It seems to be whatever you want, because it's enough time that maybe, I don't know, society's collapsed a few times and regressed to a point where people are back to living in caves. But it does kind of feel like a bit of a missed opportunity. I mean, I don't know exactly how much of a story there was meant to be here. With the sheer amount of dialogue, it kind of feels like the, the creators at least had some kind of world in mind. They seemed invested enough. It didn't necessarily feel like they just were inventing these things. And the teasing of a sequel seemed like they had bigger plans for sort of characters and stories. Now... The execution of that character and the story we've kind of sort of debated is pretty bad but it just made me curious like was was this something that was kind of meant to be more fleshed out did it give you guys that kind of impression the pretty scant cgi cutscenes to really kind of set it up but could this have gone further than than what it was or was it just meant to be a pretty kind of terrible time cop what? <laughs> um the manual and a few Bits of dialogue throughout the game, in, in, in its defense, do actually set up like the idea of a caste system and a hierarchy of big bads. And generally speaking, Delavar and his Kalanites are the ones who are on top. And then there are various small disparate factions leading down to the Oort peasantry at the bottom. And yeah, the, the, it's generally a, a sci-fi feudal society as a result. Uh, setting caves. The, 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 uh, yeah, I don't know how the, the cyber spork, scorpions, witches, and uh, animate skeletons come into play, though, uh, or or the Elysians. And it, yeah, the, the, there are occasions where it just feels like people have sci-fi words attached to a different group of people. Uh, a distinct part is the FFF, which are like a freedom fighter organization to try and stop Delavar and the Knights. Don't really help at all. It's the usual. Can you find me a cheese sandwich to get this key malarkey with them? There was an attempt, I think is the best way to describe it. But the big thrust is that, you know, the Kala Knights are basically sci-fi evil equivalents of King Arthur's squad. Or at least they are by the end of the game. I like the abstract ideas of maybe some of the levels, that some of the levels do tell you a little bit of a story. Now, some of them are really basic because they're just based around the, the quest. But some of them kind of maybe set a more interesting backdrop. There, and there's one particular level where, for some reason, everybody's lazy. They just don't feel like doing anything, and they lay around. But you have to kind of find out what what the issue is. And I can't remember if it was like a gas or a liquid that's being sort of seeped through, and it's causing everybody to feel just completely lethargic, and they're not doing a thing. 
stuff like that. I was like, that, that that could be in maybe more experienced hands. You could come up with some story of a different world. It feels like a bit of a silly kind of Doctor Who subplot or something. Feel like there was ideas there. I, I would say that the game probably is at its most interesting when you're actually talking to people. For one, finally, you're not hearing like just the music and the same four sound effects over and over. But they seem to put some effort into it. There's also decent diversity with the the amount of voice actors on this game. What, what did you think of the characters overall and the voice acting? Resident Evil 1 will run for its money. Uh, I actually feel like there's only like four of them. Uh, you know, gruff old bloke, youngish guy, old lady, and child. Excluding the big bad, but that's just me. You know, I, it felt very much like that you could hear the same voice in most maps as a different character. Although, then shout out to that one witch lady who has wood wet and it won't burn. This wood is wet, it won't burn! Because her screaming that down my ear all at 4am while I'm recording the YouTube videos is uh, a moment I'll never forget. I feel like the voice acting in this game is atrocious. Most of it's just dreary, like, get me something please. Or, oh no, I'm dying. Really, I'm dying, I need help. Please find me medicine with the cadence I've just delivered. You know, it's, it ain't gonna be on Holby City is all I'm saying. Maybe it's just the hamminess that jumps out to me, though, because so, some of them really go for it. As you say, the, the... Hello there, friend. Could you help a dying man? I was on an important mission, but I'm afraid that I have failed. Please help me finish my mission. The witch talking about the damp wood, it kind of at least gave a bit of life to it. What do you think, Sherry? I kind of assumed it was the devs doing it. They just kind of went, oh, let's just go in the studio. We can record the line we need to get done. Like, you know, do a stupid voice. I want some grog. It, it, it works. It's not terrible, but I think it's more remarkable that it's actually got it. Like, again, think of the time. Like, a lot of games don't have dialogue in them. Resident Evil came out and was remarkable for that. You know, the, the PlayStation is the first console that's really been able to bring that to life in any sort of meaningful way that doesn't sound like a bunch of pixelated noise coming. Yeah, you know, it's not being phoned in from the site of an African coup or something. Like, it sounds good for what it is, and it kind of fits. Like there are worse things about this game than the dialogue, and worse things about the, from this game about the uh, than the actual voice acting itself. That's true. They actually did bring it up in the in the preview when they're showing images, uh, talking to a character, and it's showing a dialogue. Well, because uh, by the way, this dialogue is also spoken in game um, as audio. So yeah, still fairly new thing, and I think you're you're bang on that it is probably the staff who worked on this game, if not, you know, their relatives, but. I thought, cons considering I have heard so much terrible voice acting where somebody has clearly just got into a booth and they've said the line once and as, as monotone as possible, some of these gave it a go, and I, I commend that at least. I mean, without the voices, uh, th this experience would have been d devastating. Like, it's, it's kind of bad enough, but if you weren't actually hearing anybody speaking and you're just going through the same four or five tracks on shuffle, you're getting the same kind of strange grunts out of the the enemies and you're doing that for however many hours i would be miserable more miserable yeah i i feel like the, the word miserable unfortunately is the summary of what happened to me that christmas and has pervaded ever since i've came back to touch this game welcome to the spectrum of miserable <laughs> yeah I, I, I can appreciate what you're saying though like you know as you as you gentlemen have said in, in 1997 voice acting was still in its infancy with video games for the most part and in that regard great Quality isn't as much a factor as the fact you've even got it in there. So 
Yeah, I guess it gets a few points, Steve being as generous as he can be. You know, if this was a numerical thing, this isn't Famitsu, for God's sake. Uh, moving things ahead, I mean, what's our general conclusion with this game? Is it like a a well-meaning train wreck? Is it a, a push-out to catch, capitalize on the hype for Ocarina of Time? You know, or is it just a few devs who got run away in the hype from the outside influences of the marketing you know where do we sit do we do we just cast our stones from on high and go this game was always cursed and always will be i think of course it's a mixture of all of those aspects it's a game that clearly doesn't necessarily have a design blueprint that it needed to to be something that you could actually sit down and accurately describe as a video game experience wholly I think it's more of a sort of, it's one of those oddities. You're only really going to be going back to revisit it now if you had some kind of memory of it, uh, or you just want to kind of see how bad it could be. And I think that's kind of the worst thing about it, is whenever you make a new game or a new project, you want it to have something that lasts, uh, something that kind of endures, that people kind of can come back to 15 years later and get at least what you were trying to do. And I just can't necessarily understand what they were trying to do because there's not enough on the table for me to be able to distinguish it as its own thing. And it didn't really help that it was obviously advertised as a bit like Tomb Raider, as a bit like The Legend of Zelda. It's a bit like a game, but clearly it needed more time. So I can't be too hard on it. And I'm certainly not. It's not like it's ever coming back to try and make a sequel. But it, it, it's just one of those strange cases, especially of the time of a team getting together and not necessarily having the kind of experience to be able to put out what they wanted to put out. I'll never play it again. And yeah, you you don't need to play it either, to be fair. Lap that on the box. Uh, Sherwin, what do you think? What's your general final conclusions for Excalibur 2555 AD? I mean, I, we've we've all said some fairly horrible things about this game uh, during this during this recording, but I think this is a game that came out at a time, and it's what it's what we would call now a small indie studio. Except they weren't indies back then; they were something else. They're just a bunch of people in a shed somewhere in Leeds. Um, it's something where it's a group of people who didn't have a blueprint. Really good term for it. They didn't didn't know how to make this game because there weren't games like this at the time. You know, the closest you had was Resident Evil was kind of um tomb raider or whatever else they didn't necessarily have the expertise they didn't have any idea of how to make it what the pitfalls were or anything else and i kind of get the impression they didn't really have much chops in terms of actually making other games either yeah they made a game not expecting it to do anything much and you know some marketing came along and went well here's a whole bunch of buzzwords to shift from units and that's what happened but ultimately like, it's not it's not really a thing where yeah, again, we're, we're talking about a game which kind of came out and just disappeared off the radar. It's not like everyone got this thing was massively overwhelmed and disappointed. It's not like this thing splashed down and suddenly had a sort of, you know, No Man's Sky kind of reaction or anything else like that. It just kind of came out and got forgotten. It's just a forgettable game from the 90s. And that's probably the best way you can say it. But on the plus side, it is something for whatever reason was persistent enough or was unique enough or was the something to bring the three of us together and do this podcast so at that at that level to be honest i kind of can't but say it's all right yeah no i think that's fair it's a for, for us old people who have at least encountered this game and coming back to it it's been an interesting journey and talking about it I, I do feel for the devs like i hope that these are all pseudonyms and they're now all superstars like oh really that person's actually hideo kojima as opposed to 
uh, they're probably likely moved on to other things. And I want to say that for all the uh, the unpleasantness that I think, I think I echo both my colleagues here, for all the unpleasantness we have levied at the, this game and the people development, it's a case of they were learning what they were doing or they didn't quite have the chops as Sherwin said, but you know, people still gave it a go and they still went for it. And in that, they get a few points, but it's just a slog and a a train wreck of a mess of a game. It feels like many different parts to make the blandest thing on, on earth. I don't know. I, I don't think I'll ever play this game again. I, I hope I never play a game of this quality ever again, but I'm strangely glad that I did. It's a game that we none of us will ever play again, but we we are happy existed. Oh. Yeah. And now a, a to introduce a, a special feature of Memory Card Lane. Myself, Sherwin, and Jordan have all picked several games to be basically picked at random by a a wheel of death. But we're going to give it a nicer name eventually. But for now, let's spin that wheel and see what game comes up for next week. Okay, I'm spinning it now. And the next game that we will be playing is Jumping Flash, a game I've never played, another game I've never played. Yep, never even heard of it. This could be all sorts of fun. Okay, listeners, this has been the first episode of Memory Card Lane. With me, I have had Jordan Sugru and Sherwin. Our illustrious Brig Brains are very tired, and we have gone through perhaps the most sloggy adventure. Tune in next time for Jumping Flash. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.